0: Quickly, if I can ask you to stand by, we just want to update viewers on exactly what is going on. Right now we have the FAA, the Air National Guard, and the Coast Guard searching for the plane of John F. Kennedy Jr., a single-engine Piper Saratoga. It happened the summer before my senior year of high school. JFK Jr.'s plane crashed into the Atlantic along with his wife and sister-in-law. Now there have been three theories surrounding the tragedy. Assassination, accident, or suicide but i think it was something altogether different the three theories leave far too many questions unanswered so as alice once said curiosity often leads to trouble <laughs> so let's get into a little trouble shall we <laughs> on july 16th 1999 The world lost the Prince of Camelot, John F. Kennedy Jr., along with his wife, Carolyn Bessette Kennedy, and his sister-in-law, Lauren Bessette. Now, there were plenty of people suspicious about their deaths, but the government perpetrated and media-accepted version was that the tragedy was an accident due to pilot spatial disorientation. Now, this version is assessed in the 28-page report by the National Transportation Safety Board, the NTSB. Shortly after July 21, 1999, once the bodies and the wreckage were recovered, the evidence of a cover-up was obvious. First, let's look at JFK Jr.'s experience as a pilot. He had two flight logbooks, the first dated from October 4, 1982, to November 11, 1998. The second was never found. The NTSB estimated that he had 310 hours of flight experience. Of course, those hours varied. Of the 310 hours, only 72 hours were without a certified flight instructor, a CFI, and only 55 were at night. He had purchased his plane, the Piper PA-32 Saratoga II, three months prior to the crash. In this plane, he had 36 hours of flight experience, with 9.4 at night and only 3 at night without a CFI. He had only 40 minutes of experience landing at night, which was something that he would have had to have done twice in order to reach his final destination, the night of the crash. Now, despite the lack of night flying and landing experience without a CFI, according to the NTSB report, it was a flight that he, quote-unquote, wanted to do alone. Over a 15-month span, he had flown 35 legs to or from Caldwell Airport, now known as Essex County Airport, to Martha's Vineyard Airport. Half of those legs were flown without a CFI, and five of them were flown at night. Now, before this fatal voyage, he had actually fractured his ankle during a paragliding accident. The cast had been removed on June 23rd, and he was in a cam walker until July 15th, the day before the crash, and was given a cane to assist in his walking. There is plenty of evidence that Kennedy was a daredevil. He once kayaked 125 miles through the Baltic Sea. He once paddled through the Arctic. So, paragliding was no feat for him. In fact, he had also purchased a powered parachute in 1996. The riskiest aspect of his life, however, was that he was a Kennedy. So, what happened between July 16th and July 21st? Now, the Kennedys who were going to Hyannis for a family wedding were scheduled to arrive at Hyannis Airport between 11 and 11.30 p.m. on July 16th. It would have been shortly after dropping off Lauren at the Martha's Vineyard Airport. The three left Caldwell Airport at 8.40 p.m., which was much later than he had indicated to the airport. He actually let them know earlier that day that he would be arriving between 5.30 and 6 p.m. So why were they so late? Well, they were late because Lauren left work late, and the traffic in New York City was notably worse than usual. Now John and Lauren met prior to reaching the airport and then Carolyn met them both at the airport. The three took off in John's plane 26 minutes after sunset. The first leg of the flight was 168 miles with a flight time of 1 hour and 32 minutes. During the flight, the plane reached its height of ascent at 5,500 feet. Now there's an ongoing narrative that the weather that night was bad. Well, this is false. There was hardly any wind, and it was mostly clear skies. Visibility was between 6 and 10 miles. Now, there was haze near Martha's Vineyard Airport, which, according to three pilot witnesses in the NTSB report, stated that it restricted visibility somewhere between 2 and 5 miles. After reaching 5,500 feet, the plane eventually conducted a slow descent of 400 to 800 feet per minute to reach 2,200 feet. Now, according to the NTSB report, there was absolutely no reason to make such a descent. The plane then ascended 400 feet to reach 2,600 feet. It then conducted a left downward turn at 900 feet per minute, then a right turn with increased descending speed. It was now in what is considered death spiral, and the pilot never regained control. The Federal Aviation Administration, the FAA, noted that the last radar contact was registered at 9.39 p.m. Two minutes later, approximately seven miles away from Martha's Vineyard, the plane plummeted toward the ocean, sinking 115 feet to the ocean floor of the Atlantic. When the Kennedys did not arrive to Hyannis, Family members called the Coast Guard station at Woods Hole at approximately 2.15 a.m. This was also the same time the FAA received an emergency beacon off the northern tip of Long Island in the Montauk area. This resulted in nothing. The Coast Guard began their search at 4.30 a.m. Nearly seven hours had elapsed from the time of the crash to the beginning of the rescue search. Now, interestingly enough, the type of plane flown JFK Jr. automatically sends out a distress signal if it goes below 200 feet, unless it is in its approach to the tarmac. When the crash was announced, President Bill Clinton authorized the use of U.S. military to help in the search. This was a decision in which he received a lot of criticism. Along with the Coast Guard, Navy, and Air Force helping with the search, the Pentagon took over press communications shortly after the crash. It was not until July 20th at 10.40 p.m. that the wreckage was located via sonar by the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration ship, Rood, which was normally used to survey and map the ocean floor. The following day, the cabin of the plane was placed aboard the USS Grasp. After five more dives the following day, more wreckage was found and placed aboard the ship. On July 23rd, the wreckage was taken by the Navy to Newport, Rhode Island, and then to the U.S. Coast Guard Air Station at Otis Air Force Base in Cape Cod. The wreckage would remain there under investigation for the following days and then examined additionally on August 1st and August 2nd. And Before the wreckage was pulled from the ocean, the bodies were pulled from the wreckage. The bodies had been found in the plane's fuselage. Senator Edward Kennedy was joined by his two sons, Representatives Patrick J. Kennedy and Edward M. Kennedy Jr. aboard the USS Grasp. They then accompanied the bodies to the Barnstable County Medical Examiner's Office in Cape Cod to identify the bodies. But what happened during and after the search? It is extraordinary that three branches of the U.S. military would be involved in a citizen search and rescue mission. But given the fact that it was a Kennedy, one is willing to make an exception. A more difficult exception to allow is the Pentagon immediately taking over the investigation and the press briefings. Because in the end, the three were citizens and were not military personnel or even political figures. That aside, the three brought on board to view the bodies and identify them were politicians with the names of the highest order, Kennedy. The bodies had suffered through incredible carnage, having hit the water at approximately 5,000 feet per minute from approximately 2,600 feet. One report compared the impact to being hit by two pounds of TNT. After this impact, the bodies remained in the water for five more days. Therefore, the question must arise, could the bodies be definitively identified? The three Kennedys positively identified the bodies, but the following leaves additional questions about the identities. A medical examination, rather than an autopsy, was performed. The cause of death was determined to be from multiple traumatic injuries. Samples sent to the FAA Toxicology Accident Research Laboratory in Oklahoma City returned negative for drugs or alcohol. The bodies were cremated only hours after being examined. Their ashes were then scattered at sea. Now, the Pentagon informed the press that this was the wish of both the Kennedy and the Beset families. The timeline from discovery to burial seems rushed. Now, follow me on this. On July 21st, at 2.30 a.m., the bodies and the wreckage were found. The bodies were then raised out of the water at 4.30 p.m. After noon, the next day, Senator Kennedy boarded a US Coast Guard helicopter and then boarded the Grasp with his sons. By that evening, the bodies had been examined, cremated, and buried at sea from aboard the naval destroyer USS Briscoe. Even the medical report appears rushed. Now, these reports typically range between 15 to 20 pages, and that's just for one death. Well, there were three deaths, and yet, the report was only one page long. Regarding cremation, all three were of the Catholic faith. In 1963, the same year of John F. Kennedy's assassination, the Catholic Church reversed its decision barring cremation. The Church, however, still does not allow the scattering of ashes. So why does a cover-up seem likely? Well, the immediate action taken by the federal government ensured further investigation would be impossible. Not only had the Pentagon assumed complete control and the bodies cremated and buried at sea, but the four two-hour videotapes shot by the divers and all the photography of the rescue mission's discovery were destroyed. After a freedom of information application was submitted by a newspaper, the Navy finally confessed to burning all of the photography and videography, quote unquote, out of respect for the family. All that remains now is one Photo of the supposed dismantled plane lying on a blue tarp. The flight recorder was also found crushed with the backup battery, which is required to retain speech data, missing. There was no data retained in the recorder. I mentioned earlier that Americans were told that all three bodies were found in the plane fuselage. Early reports of the whereabouts of JFK Jr.'s body actually contradict that narrative that was later by the Pentagon. In fact, for much of July 21st, reports came in that JFK Jr. was found on the ocean floor near the wreckage, but not inside of it. Also, the Beset sisters could not be located, and in fact were not located until very late in the afternoon and separate from the crash. It is not until July 22nd, the day after all three bodies were found, that media reports stated that all three were found in the plane's fuselage. For some reason, the early reports noted that the bodies were actually found away from the plane. Okay, so maybe a cover-up seems likely, but why a cover-up? Well, Kennedy was a bit of a fish out of water. He was born for politics for varying reasons. His looks... His charisma, his knowledge of the political system, his love of country, but more importantly, his name. He made his way through law school at New York University and finally passed the bar exam. I'm sure some of you may remember the headline, The Hunk Flunks. His mother, Jackie Kennedy Onassis, who worked tirelessly to protect him from others, and to an extent from himself, passed in 1994. The following year, he launched George a monthly magazine that combined politics and Hollywood. Kennedy was heavily involved in every edition. It was the closest he had come professionally to the political game, and perhaps that was because of his mother. His research into his father's assassination had never wavered, and in fact it was a topic in which he was extremely well-versed, having read every document and book that he could get his hands on. The subject was one of the last articles he published in his magazine. His magazine, along with his name, gave him access to some of the world's most powerful people. For example, in 1997, he met with Fidel Castro for an informal meeting. He had scheduled a return visit to Cuba for a formal sit-down, but he died before that came to fruition. He had several pieces written in the magazine that were critical of the Clintons, especially during the Whitewater scandal, although he did steer clear of the sex scandal. The June 1998 edition, however, had a strange piece involving the poetry of then nine-year-old Monica Lewinsky. Lewinsky had actually tried to get a job at the magazine after she left the White House. But this edition also had articles on Bill Clinton and Bill Gates. The most controversial cover now is the February 1997 edition. The edition is about how to survive the future. The cover has a woman dressed in a futuristic outfit standing in a desert with a near-completely-destroyed Mount Rushmore in the background. Some of the elements on the cover were Bill Gates talks to John Kennedy about Murdoch, money, and world domination. Indictment day. Will Hillary get busted? And a UFO is in the right-hand corner just below the magazine's name. In every edition, there was a letter from the editor, John F. Kennedy Jr., At the end of his letter in the February 1997 edition, he wrote regarding the magazine itself. Why not put it in a safe place somewhere and take it out in 20 years? To paraphrase a great Englishman, it may not get you what you want, but you just might find it will get you what you need. 20 years removed, bits and pieces from this edition become very relevant. Bill Gates talks to John Kennedy about Murdoch, money, and world domination. Gates has been coming under heavy fire, especially from conservatives, as well as Robert F. Kennedy Jr., about his global push, and at times outright force, of vaccinations. Murdoch is also a major player in the vaccine industry with his Children's Research Institute. The most pervasive method he pushed for was his home country, Australia's no jab, no pay, for parents who did not have their children immunized. With billions of dollars at stake and possibly trillions in the long run, the race to create a vaccine for the coronavirus could end with the winner obtaining some quasi-form of world domination. Indictment day. Will Hillary get busted? Of course, this headline was in direct reference to the Whitewater scandal, from which the Clintons suffered very little in terms of finance and power. But there were suicides and prison sentences for people who were closely related to the scandal. Another scandal hit during the run-up to the 2016 election, which involved Hillary Clinton. During one of the presidential debates, then-candidate Donald Trump suggested that she would be in jail if he were president. It's just awfully good that someone with the temperament of Donald Trump is not in charge of the law in our country. Because you'd be in jail. Secretary Clinton. Twenty years later, almost to the month of the magazine's publication, Trump was sworn into office. The UFO. In April of 2020, the U.S. Navy released its UFO video footage. Interestingly enough, this footage was actually leaked in 2017. The Englishman Kennedy referenced in his letter was Mick Jagger, who sings the same song that is now played at the end of every Trump rally. It was common knowledge that Trump and JFK Jr. were good friends. All three topics, however, can be chalked up to just strange coincidences, as none are too far for the imagination to stretch. Considering Gates and Murdoch were already extremely wealthy and powerful men, money and world domination just seemed to go hand in hand. By the time 1997 rolled around, the Whitewater investigation had been going on for several years. In fact, the investigation would not end until September of 2000, nearly extending the entirety of President Bill Clinton's two terms. And the UFO? Well, the interest in UFO cover-ups in America has been around for a while. Another interesting point was the 102nd Congress had passed a bill sealing the JFK assassination documents for 25 years. Their release date? October 26th, 2017. As with everything, however, it all comes down to the powers that be. Now The imagination doesn't have to stretch too far to know that JFK Jr. was getting close to power in more ways than one. He was asking the right questions to the right people, but perhaps just at the wrong time. The articles in his magazine pulled no punches against the politically powerful. And toward the end of the 90s, two things became very obvious. The Bushes and the Clintons would be in power for quite some time. It was to be Bush to Clinton to Bush to Clinton, as Hillary Clinton was being primed to become the first female president. As George W. Bush was campaigning against Al Gore for the presidency, Hillary Clinton was prepping for the New York Senate seat being vacated by the longtime Senator Daniel Patrick Moynihan. Kennedy had been running his magazine for four years, and it was rumored to have been falling on hard times. His calling toward politics was becoming more obvious. He began discussing running for the soon-to-be-vacant Senate seat. Lawrence Leamer's book, Sons of Camelot, states that Kennedy was upset that Hillary was campaigning in his state. Billy Noonan, in his book, Forever Young My Friendship with John F. Kennedy Jr., wrote that Kennedy seemed to be gearing up for the opening and quoted him as saying, Wait until she gets here in New York City. She's going to get her head handed to her. In 1997, he hinted at going into politics after conducting a private poll. The results from the poll showed that he was the state's favorite Democrat. A recent interview with George Irvin on the podcast Fatal Voyage suggests that Kennedy may have been worried about going into politics, and rightly so. According to Irvin, Kennedy said that there were some people who did not want him running for president. Now, it would be an understatement to say that Hillary would have rather he not run against her for the Senate seat, as no one likes to lose. The threat of this in the highest office, however, would undoubtedly result in the reopening of the JFK assassination case. Although he may have hinted at going into politics and may have been planning to do so, it seems that there was something else on his mind in 1997. He began his flying lessons in 1982, but in the span of six years he had only logged 47 hours. From September 1988 to almost the end of 1997, there were no entries in his flight log. From December 1997 to April 1998, however, he logged 53 hours with 10 flown without a CFI. That April, he obtained his private pilot license. He also received his second class FAA medical certificate in December of 1997. On March 12, 1999, he passed his flight instrument exam in a simulator plane, which was owned by Random Ventures Incorporated, had a tell number of N529JK in honor of his late father's initials and birth date. He purchased his Saratoga on April 30th, only three months prior to the crash. It was this same year that he initiated some type of relations with Fidel Castro. Even today, many believe that Castro had something to do with the JFK assassination. There were connections between him and Lee Harvey Oswald. There is little doubt that he was planning to ask Castro about the assassination in his upcoming interview. So if the powers that be during his father's administration were still the powers that be during his George days, then running for office would have been incredibly risky. The Bushes have been no stranger to the JFK assassination, as George Bush was noted in a famous memo from J. Edgar Hoover, a memo the CIA eventually and uncharacteristically disputed. Even President Clinton had mentioned wanting to find out who killed JFK. Then again, what president hasn't wanted to have that knowledge? The difference is that none of them have done anything with it. Kennedy would have. So was JFK Jr. assassinated? Was it an accident? Was it murder-suicide? It was none of these options. And all the evidence points to a completely different scenario. The orchestration behind this scenario began when he started taking his flying seriously. And this is how it happened. Kennedy's sudden renewal of interest in flying provides us a clear view of a highly probable escape route from the dangers that were. And it is the illogical circumstances that surround the crash that make a staged death a logical conclusion. Kennedy's flight experience was approximately 310 hours. 55 of those hours had been at night, but only 10 of those hours had been at night in his new Saratoga, and only three without a CFI. The most difficult part about flying a plane is landing the aircraft. So why would Kennedy intentionally begin a flight after sunset and conduct something twice in one flight that he had only 40 minutes of experience doing? which is landing at night without a CFI. More importantly, why would he insist on flying without a CFI with his wife and sister-in-law in tow? Additionally, why would they agree to do so, knowing full well his experience level at night flying? One of the CFIs in the NTSB report indicated that Kennedy would have had no problem landing at the Martha's Vineyard Airport had there been a visible horizon. There was not. Not only did Kennedy leave Caldwell Airport at 8.40 p.m., 26 minutes after sunset, but he ventured on a 92-minute flight, which would have had his plane arrive at Martha's Vineyard Airport after the control tower was already closed. The tower closed at 10 p.m. Now, not only would the night flying be risky in itself, but even more so without a air traffic controller available. The Martha's Vineyard control tower never made the phone call that the expected plane had yet to land. Why? Because there was no one there to make the call. On top of the night landing inexperience and the closed air tower, his ankle had recently healed. He would have had to apply a good amount of pressure twice with his foot for those landings, all of which could have been alleviated with a CFI. Keep in mind, He chose not to have a CFI fly with him. The only risky part of the weather conditions was that the flight was conducted at night. In the previous 15 months, he had flown 35 legs of the flight, 17 times without a CFI, and 5 times at night. He had become very familiar with the flight path, and he knew exactly where he would be at certain points in time, which is information he could have relayed to someone. His frequency for radio communication with air traffic controllers was off by one digit, meaning that he could not communicate with air traffic controllers. More importantly, air traffic controllers could not communicate with him. This digit being off was not due to the crash, as there was a moment during the flight where the Saratoga was in the path of a commercial airliner. The air traffic controller and the commercial airline pilot had to communicate with each other in order to avoid a collision with the Kennedy plane. It was as if Kennedy had no desire to be in communication with the control towers, but being on a different frequency means that he may have been in communication with someone else. The autopilot was disengaged early into the flight. Had he become disoriented or lost, he could have easily turned the autopilot back on. His initial descent from 5,500 feet to 2,200 feet indicates that the autopilot had been disengaged. There are two possible reasons for why it took so long to locate the plane. One, a plane's transponder can be turned off manually. This is what happened with the Malaysian Airlines Flight 370. Two, the Saratoga's transponder does not work if the plane is submerged underwater. The Saratoga has a system that enables it to automatically send a distress signal if it goes below 200 feet. This distress signal never alerted the FAA. The absence of a distress signal allowed for several more hours from the moment of the crash to the moment the rescue and search mission began. There are two ways to ensure that the distress signal is never sent. One, you can manually disable the circuit breaker, or two, you turn the plane off altogether. It was not until the plane was clear from view of land and lit structures and completely over water that the autopilot was disengaged and the plane began its initial slow descent. With the cover of night and far from shore, the plane could conduct any movement or operation without detection. Allowing a plane to crash over water rather than over land makes more sense. Over land, the lights would have been visible throughout the entire flight. Also, an explosion would have been highly visible and audible. There's also the near certainty that no one below would have been injured when the plane hit the water. The plane's terminal descent began with a left turn and a descent of 900 feet per minute. It then turned right as it descended into the death spiral at speeds nearing 5,000 feet per minute. The plane's reaction from its immediate descent appeared more like someone who has completely relinquished control of the plane rather than a pilot struggling to regain control. The Saratoga is built for easy exit, even in flight. There is a large side exit in the aft of the cabin and two cockpit doors. The damage recorded to the plane in the NTSB report suggests the door may have been open as the aft roof had been ripped off about five feet long by three and a half feet wide on the door side. The peak of the ascent was 5,500 feet. The plane then descended to 2,200 feet before ascending up to 2,600 feet. Now, according to the United States Parachute Association, the minimum height required for inexperienced skydivers is 5,500 feet and 2,500 feet for semi-experienced skydivers. Landing in water ensures a safer parachute landing. And even with a weak ankle, Kennedy would have had no problem with a water landing. But there were bodies in the water, right? Well, if all three bodies were in the plane's fuselage, then why did it take so long to locate the bodies of the Beset sisters? And why did the reports on where the bodies were retrieved suddenly change the day after the bodies were found and taken to the medical examiner? The fact remains that there were three bodies in or near the wreckage. The fact also remains that whoever was in that plane was hit by an impact equivalent to two pounds of TNT. They were also under the Atlantic for more than five days. It was July, therefore it was warm. The average water temperature off Martha's Vineyard during the month of July is 68 degrees. The temperature at the bottom of the ocean during the search was noted at being 52 degrees. In order for bodies to even have a chance at being preserved, the water temperature needs to be no more than 44 degrees. When the Kennedy politicians arrived to identify the bodies, the question remains whether there was any sense of certainty at who they saw, or if it was just mere guesswork and assumption. Then again, who would John F. Kennedy rather have identify fake corpses than his own family? Here are a few more things to think about. The toxicology report remains a mystery as no one within the public eye has actually seen it. Also, no one within the public eye actually saw the bodies. A follow-up autopsy was made impossible as the bodies were cremated and buried at sea, which went against the religion of all three. All evidence, recorded and photographed, was destroyed. No one has seen the airplane in its dismantled form, except for a single photo of a plane lying on a tarp that may or may not even be the actual plane. And even if it is the actual plane, it is just one blurry, nondescript photo taken from the rear. If the threat to Kennedy was great enough, leaping from a plane at a safe height would be no tall order. As Kennedy was known for being a daredevil, being the last one off of the plane would have fit right in to how he would have planned it. Carolyn and Lauren leaping from 5,500 feet would simply require them to pull the cord sometime between the following 3,000 feet. But after they jump out of the plane, then what? Well, Kennedy had a positive relationship with the FBI, having been saved by them from numerous kidnapping plots. This positive relationship was never more evident than when the FBI dropped their case against him after he had sent a death threat letter to then-Senator Joe Biden in 1994. It would be no stretch to assume that the FBI would have informed him of certain threats from powerful families. It would also be no stretch for those relationships to assist him and his family in their escape. With a seven-hour window from the moment the plane hit the water to the rescue search mission beginning, the three would have had plenty of time to make their way to their destination, specifically by boat, in order to avoid radar. Kennedy had met with Castro and was planning to meet with him again in a matter of months. Isolated Cuba would seem an obvious choice for hiding. Not only because it is a country practically off the grid, but also because of the long history between Castro and JFK. There's also another destination that seems possible, though it will remain unmentioned, but it truly does speak to the Trump-JFK Jr. connection. There are many ways that this whole scenario could have played out, and any of them could render an assassination or accident verdict. The logic, however, that Kennedy, who was known to be a very meticulous pilot, would take this flight at night without a CFI, with an injured ankle over open water in order to eliminate any possible horizon with his wife and sister-in-law in tow, among many other circumstances, just doesn't add up. So if Kennedy was envisioning a run at the Senate and eventually the presidency, then he wasn't just merely a political opponent. He was a threat to the establishment. That is all the reason he would have needed to make his escape and return 20 years later to bring to light all that the establishment had done and disassemble all the power it had collected. And the only person who could pull that off is the one person you can't kill. The one person who everyone thinks is already dead. And the Deitch Memo is one of those documents. It was a discovery document.